0: Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in, because Big
1: Mike has got the life
0: starting now. Welcome to the
1: Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back my really good friend, Jake Vanderslice. Hi, Jake. Mike, thrilled to
0: be here. Uh, you're a dear friend, a mentor, a partner, investor, and uh, glad to be on today. So thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you for your kind word. Appreciate the opportunity uh, and the pleasure and the privilege to be working with you. It, it's it's really been a fun journey. And as we were chatting before this call, kind of investing with you and working with you gives me what I call a tranquility, which is kind of peace of mind, knowing that we're investing with very competent uh, operator, and you are that in self storage. You know what you're doing. You've done it for years, and uh, you continue to do that. So before that happens, what's the update, Jake and family? Anything in- new and exciting? What's happening with uh, on a personal level?
0: Yeah, we we got two little boys that are four and three. Uh, our four year old turns turns five tomorrow, so we're we're gearing up a, a weekend of birthday celebrations with the family. A little little uh, indoor play place with kids, dinner dinner at my parents. We've got a, a Jeep monster truck that I have to assemble tonight. Um, so they're keeping us on our toes between that and work. Uh, got a lot going on. I know you know how that goes.
1: Yeah. K- kids are a blessing. Um, they sort of keep you busy. And that's kind of you start, as, as they get older and older, you start seeing life through, through kids more and more. So really happy to hear that you, you, you're enjoying your family time and you have a wonderful, blessed family. Now let's jump to self-storage. So what's going on in the world of self-storage? We're recording this in very, very late April, um, almost May. And uh, just curious what's happening out there uh, in the world of self-storage. Well, a lot of what I'm going to
0: say on on my market commentary, kind of it, it transcends asset classes. So a lot of this is not just storage. It's multifamily, industrial, retail. Um, but I guess the theme that we're seeing right now, as we all know, the capital markets environment has changed materially in the last year. Um, I feel like I feel like kind of the tipping point when rates started running up, at least uh in our view, it was kind of September of last year. That's when it really started like, wow, this is a lot, lot higher than it used to be. So, what we're seeing right now in the industry, um we are still seeing, very high asset valuations, that's a, that's a broad comment. Obviously, some deals have come down a little bit, um, but higher valuations and reduced transaction volume. So there remains a very wide bid-ask spread between buyers and sellers. Um, if you're an operator and you don't have to sell, you're not selling, you're waiting this one out. If you have cash and you have runway on your debt maturity, um, your cash flows are still good, consumer demand is still good, you're not selling. And the buyers that want to buy are looking at their pricing on their cost of capital. Their interest rate went from you know mid threes to seven or seven and a half, depending on the product type, maybe low sixes. Um, and they can't pay the same price that they could pay a year ago. So we're seeing reduced transaction volume. And I think that theme is going to be in place for certainly the rest of this year. Um, within the storage space, um, there's, there's a couple different types of deals, some of which are trading still very aggressively and others which are not. So uh, the deals that are not trading like they used to be are deals with a heavier revenue lift. An example of those would be uh, you know, certificate of occupancy purchases, uh, development deals. We see a lot of entitled development sites going to market. Uh, the developer couldn't get the equity, couldn't get the debt. Their hard costs are too high, so they're trying to sell the entitled site to a third party. Um, so really, the, the heavier value add component deals are not trading like they were. Uh, the deals that are, are still trading very aggressively um, are deals that are nearing economic stabilization, but not quite there quite there yet. So a buyer can step in, they can buy that trailing cash flow, and they have a story within maybe 24 months to get to, say, a 6% yield on cost or 6% cap rate from a mid-4 cap rate. Um, so the deals like that that are kind of nearing the inflection point of stabilization, but still with some runway and some value to create those are still trading at cap rates that are well under 5%. And buyers generally on the leverage side, we're seeing a lot lower leverage in this environment than we were a year ago. And the reason for that is obvious. Um, They can't make their debt service coverage ratios work and lenders are advancing lower proceeds. So down the middle loan to cost a year ago might have been 70%. Uh, Today, it's more like 50. So reduced proceeds, um, on the on the acquisition debt uh, front and uh, reduced transaction volume, I think for for the near term. So we'll, we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Great update. Uh, a lot of color. So the bid ask spreads. That's exactly what we've seen. Transaction volume down. Um, I, I I heard this figure and it varies. I don't know whether it's applicable to storage, but probably something along these lines. Transaction volume year over year in commercial real estate is down seventy percent. It's like a big number. Yeah, I and believe it. the leverage may be a little, little different, but probably uh, somewhere ballpark. And uh, absolute, your comments on the debt service coverage ratio are critical. I mean, that, that that that's effectively the impact of rising interest rates. You can't take the same leverage. 70% leverage, like you said, uh, when the rates were in the threes, now you you have to be at 50% leverage to cover the same debt uh, when the rates are in the sixes, right? So and I, you know, if it's above if seven, it's even worse. Uh, the the math, of course, uh, forces lower LTV, lower loan to cost, and um, but what's really amazing is what you just said. Uh, deal the deals are trading still at lower, I mean, high values, lower cap rates, uh, if they are near completion or light value add. Let's just call them light incremental value add. Where the risks are not as bad as heavy value as like a certificate of occupancy or the whole construction ground up, right? So that makes sense. but i'm I'm still amazed that the cap rates haven't really expended. Um, I, I guess the first the first step in the cap rate potential expansion is collapse in the volume, right? Then you've yeah. got desperate situations, and that's when the transactions will take place. So do you see some distressed sales coming from bridge loan maturity? Uh, they didn't finish value add. They got delayed. Is that the time for the fresh dollars to come in and opportunistically start buying when the sellers are distressed and motivated, not the assets but the sellers? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll
0: answer that question. But you know, we've all, most of us, have seen the big short. Remember, they're all sitting there watching their computer screens, wondering why the value, of the why the value of these bonds hasn't dropped yet. Like all the math says, the value should be go going down, but they're not going down yet. So it's kind of the same thing to a degree in commercial real estate or storage. If you do the math, right, you can't pay a stabilized five cap and finance it a seven, right? That just doesn't work. So I think inevitably there's got to be some some asset devaluation. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. And we'll see what the forward curve does. We'll see what the Fed does. But I I do think there's going to be some opportunity for distressed acquisitions because of debt maturities, to your point. so. In Q3 and Q4 of this year, in the storage industry, there's about $2 million, I'm sorry, $2 billion, which is not a huge number, but about $2 billion in commercial mortgage-backed security debt maturities on floating rate loans. Um, and of those loans that are maturing in Q3 and Q4, as of about a month ago, a quarter of those were on the watch list from declining debt service coverage ratios because they're floating. Now, they're not declining necessarily because they're seeing an NOI reduction. They're seeing an increase in their cost of capital. So what is an operator going to do when that debt matures? Um, They've got they've really got two options, depending depending on what interest rates does uh, do. Um, They can either bring equity to the table to refinance, which is no fun calling capital on a deal that's underperforming. No one wants to do that Um, or they have to sell and they have to sell at probably a valuation that's not attractive to the deal, but they need to get out from underneath their debt. Now, depending on the health of the lender, if you have a good relationship, you could pretend and extend, you could mod the loan. Um, But the lenders we talked to who um, run their balance sheet product, meaning floating rate loans, they're held on the bank's balance sheet. uh, They're having a lot of coverage covenant conversations right now with their borrowers. And they're not working with them as much as I would expect them to work with them. Um, So I think there'll be some opportunity, not just in storage, but multifamily, really all asset classes, when someone was attracted to a two and a half percent debt interest rate in 2020 on a floater, stressing their model up to a four, saying, "Okay, we're going to refi at a four, a four and a half. That's nice and conservative. We're going to hit our NOI projections. Well, now they're refiing at a six and a half or a seven or whatever the rate might be a lot higher. Um, So we see some opportunity coming up. We're already seeing that happen to a degree. Uh, We bought a deal in fund three in February um, with the same underwriting assumptions that we always make. And that was a 19 IRR and a three multiple underwritten. And we learned within a few days of closing that the seller's debt matured the following week. So they gave us a good deal knowing that they didn't have an option to refinance back out of it into term debt. And they kind of ran for the door. So I don't see this happening in, in a large amount of volume, but we're seeing we're certainly seeing a little bit more attractive acquisition opportunities compared to what we were seeing a year
1: ago. Yeah, great commentary as well, and uh, appreciate your wisdom and insight. That of this deal example, where seller was motivated, of course they they hit it. They didn't want to make it a attra- uh, not not something you advertise, uh, but that was a critical pressure point on them.
0: So, and Mike, it's not it's not just the floating rate debt maturities. It's um, we're coming out of this era. We're out of this era of of irrational exuberance, right? Everything worked so well for so long. And in 2022, for example, we underwrote, uh, we looked at 900 deals. We financially modeled 250 and we closed on eight. And the reason we only closed on eight is we're just, we weren't seeing stuff that we liked with good risk adjusted returns. Now, the, the interesting thing and kind of scary, but also some opportunity is most of those deals we looked at not only traded, but they traded for substantially higher pricing than we could make work in our model. So you've got this kind of, I don't wanna say it's a ticking time bomb, but you might say it's that. You've got this perfect storm, so to speak, another cliche in uh, in the same paragraph, you've got this perfect storm of deals that were bought with aggressive and untenable underwriting assumptions on floating rate debt. And I think those two things put together, and this is not just storage. Once again, it's I think it's all asset classes. I think those two things put together are going to create some some exciting opportunities. Um, how much, uh, how how what level those manifest is you know remains to be seen. I don't think it's going to be a, a, a macro. You know everything's a fire sale, twenty percent off from what it was before. But we'll certainly see some duress for those reasons.
1: Yeah, appreciate the wisdom and the, I agree with agreed 100%. It, it's not storage. It, in fact, the amount of problems in uh, value add multifamily and some other value add deals is, is higher than storage because a lot of storage projects were bought uh, a little bit more longer term debt, a little bit lower leverage. At least storage has been always been a little bit of more conservative sort of investment. Class. Although, of course, it's been higher leverage deals. But multifamily value adds, yes, I've seen. And the, the crazy part is, that um, what is it? What do you call it? Uh, in multifamily, ninety-five percent is not higher. of Value add deals were taken down with the bridge debt. I mean, it's just no. it's just it made no sense to get Fannie Freddie paper from the start when you can refi a year or two later after the value add execution or three years, and all those assumptions that the rates would be, you know, if they go up, they go up a little bit. Nobody foresaw this this whole fiasco and. That's the that that's the difficult part is um how does the industry survive without really crushing and burning, like a cliff. Like I mean, they call it death maturities cliff um later this year into next year. Because the current you know, and people are still talking about Fed raising interest rates another quarter, it doesn't even matter. The damage has been done. At this point, yeah. the numbers are so much higher that whether another quarter happens or not, it's irrelevant. It's just how long the rate's gonna stay here and um you know, my theory is they're going to try to keep the rates at the elevated level or restricted level for at least six months, but the big problem is if stuff starts breaking, they might have to move earlier. But that aside, you know, storage industry at least feels a little bit more conservative. So as, as an owner of properties, uh, it, it, as long as you have good debt and you, you're holding it, you can just cash flow and not sweat it. And if you can bring a product to the market later, Uh, let's just say, in a year and a half, two years, you're probably better off than bringing it to the market in six months. But I'm just curious, even in this environment, are there buyers willing to pay premium prices for aggregated product? In other words, um, sort of buying pieces and then selling as a whole as a bigger package. Uh, Do you see uh, sort of reads coming in or bigger players and still paying premium prices or an aggravated product well, they've lost all their appetites and they're sitting on sidelines and looking for phenomenal deals. What are you seeing? Yeah, um, well, one good example of
0: kind of the industry consolidation, which you might have heard about, is the, the merger between life storage and extra space. Um, they are going to leapfrog public storage, which was far and away the number one biggest storage owner-operator in the world. Um, <clears throat> so that's a big one. Uh, as far as portfolio sales go, um, yeah, we're we're still seeing um, lots of data points that support the theory that, in in scale and on a portfolio basis, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, for example, let's say we have a deal in um, in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, a regional operator in Pensacola uh, might pay us a six cap for that asset, right? Uh, they've got a few facilities in the area. They might pay us a six cap. If that deal is bundled up with a portfolio of other deals, it's maybe 250 or $500 million. um, You're going to attract generally a larger private equity or institutional buyer who is under pressure to deploy lots of capital all at once in a single transaction. And they will generally pay a premium for that scale as opposed to buying these things one off. So that same Pensacola deal might trade at a four cap as part of a larger portfolio. So, as we explore the appropriate timing to, to monetize the value creation in some of our portfolio, um, that could be one of the paths that we take. Um, what we don't intend to do is, uh, especially within our funds, is sell deals off on an individual basis um, because you, you start, uh, you know even if it's an attractive sale, which we might consider doing, if it's an offer we can't refuse, but you start diminishing your scale and diminishing that attractive aggregation and scale component to a potential new buyer. Um, So our general thesis uh, throughout our entire portfolio is accumulating these one-off deals um, that are owned by relatively unsophisticated operators, um, buying these over time, and then building an asset base that's uh, large enough that we could eventually monetize and get some of those value creation tailwinds with that scale. So we'll see how that that all unfolds.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's. Uh, like you said, you have two large public companies merging uh, to create even a bigger one. There's an economy of scale there. And then even on a smaller scale, uh, it, it's a big dollar deployment problem for those large operators. And they're willing to pay premium prices, lower cap rates for, uh, for you know consuming a lot of product. So it makes a lot of sense. But uh, how does it work in a... Much high interest rate environment. What bothers me most is is a negative spread. So uh, you have a negative negative spread. Uh, well, the spread was positive when the rates were very low, and then the rates risen so fast that the spread uh, between the um, the cap rate and the interest rate has gotten negative and substantially negative. You're buying at a cap rate of. Five and you're paying seven. That's negative 200 basis points, negative two percent spread. It's a crazy spread. So, only way you can meet the SCR with very low leverage, and uh, it's it's obviously very speculative. Dependent on two things: one, raising rents, right? So you can tolerate the negative spread for so long as, the rent, as long as the rents are inflating, right? That's that's one and two. You expect the rates to cycle back down, right? If the rates cycle back down, yeah, you can refi and then you can tolerate this negative spread. So, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, on on these negative spreads, you're you're exactly right. Buyers are buying on speculation, and the speculation is driven around their their pro forma ability to increase that operating income and increase revenue. Um, and really, when you're when you're talking about a going in cap rate you've got to put some context around the deal type. So if we buy a CFO acquisition, certificate of occupancy acquisition, where we're buying a, a new facility, but we're buying it empty, um, our going in cap rate on trailing revenue is negative, right? We're buying a deal with no revenue, lots of expenses, and the the metric of a going in yield on cost is kind of not applicable there. Um, so you're right, people are buying these with negative spreads, but what they're modeling out is you know, a a trailing yield on cost, say of a four, they're financing it a seven, but they're they're believing in two things. Number one, their ability to grow NOI over time uh, to get to at least a point where they're covering their debt service. And then secondly, they're believing in a moderation of the interest rate environment, right? They're believing that things are gonna peak fairly soon. And then maybe this year, maybe next year, start to kind of come back down to earth. but yeah, if you're because values are still high, uh, your only option for coverage is lower leverage, right? And you uh, buyers are just betting on that ability to grow NOI. Um, how that turns out in the in the coming quarters and years uh, remains to be seen.
1: Yeah, appreciate that clarification and affirmation that it's really speculation uh, that the interest rates will cycle down, which is possible in some degree, is probable. I I, I certainly believe that. With the amount of debt, U.S. has got used to following reserve policy, zero interest rate uh, environment. Uh, the country is addicted to low interest rates as cocaine, and we're dealing with withdrawal, massive withdrawal right now. And this, this, this is the, it's such a fast and furious. We're destab- we're in a very destabilized environment. So uh, whoever is going to hold off longest can survive, but a lot of people will not be able to hold off. So that's kind of the uh, the thesis in, you're right. If the interest rate cycle back down, and I believe they will, they have to. It's almost like we don't have a choice. There's so many problems with these high interest rate environments. Yeah, it's fighting inflation, but it's causing large problems everywhere else that the Fed just didn't foresee. And even if they foresaw it, they still had to fight inflation. So it's almost like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But on the rent increase side, I mean, that's Kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, it's inflation, rent inflation, and do you see storage rent inflation being continuously? Well, what level? What do you think on a forward basis? And I know it's, it varies market by market. What do you generally project? What kind of rent inflation in the in the upcoming years uh, you're seeing uh, to take place? Yeah, and of course,
0: as you said, it varies market to market,
1: deal to deal. But
0: I'll give you kind of a few examples of how we we underwrite rent growth in a a given acquisition. So if we're buying a a kind of a down the middle deal would be a property that's maybe mid nineties, physically occupied, but economic occupancy is maybe 70%. um, And that means that the in-place revenue is 70% of where it should be based on market rates. So on a deal like that, we have a heavier NOI growth lift in the first couple of years of operations as we begin bringing below-market customers up to market rates. Um, And then one other deal example, then I'll kind of tie the two together. Let's say we buy a CFO deal or we we build a new construction deal in a a single-asset syndication. So in those first couple of years of operations, you're mainly focused on physical occupancy growth, more so than economic. So you're filling up units at below-market rents just to get revenue in. And then once you reach physical stabilization, you start to play with the revenue management by increasing rates on higher demand unit types over time. Um, so after we're nearing stabilization, we generally model three um, to four percent rent growth for the remainder of the whole period, just kind of depending on the market. Um, but we're we're simply just identifying properties that are that have below market income streams, below market rents and then slowly raising customers up to those market rates. Um, and that's really the value creation. And everything I just said, I think that that, that transcends into multifamily as well. Like value-add multifamily, uh, you put 10K per unit and capital improvements and you raise rents over time as, as, yeah. as, as mm-hmm. uh, tenants turn by 10 or 15% and suddenly you create created a lot of NOI growth and a lot of value. So yeah, after stabilization, or nearing stabilization, it's a heavier lift in NOI growth the first couple of years, depending on the deal, and then kind of three to five percent steady eddy from there.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. So so that's what I was looking for. It's kind of, I guess, stabilized uh asset uh inflation, three to four percent, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it's not ten percent inflation during kind of you know post-COVID rapid. Uh but the 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 other key key comment is value add and the value add. Uh, is you're buying it right, and then you're just pushing the rents up to the market, which is, it, it's a value-add, in essence. And at least in storage, the value-add, you don't have to heavily renovate these units. In multifamily, typically, you're dealing with classic look and all the units. Well, I will love both asset classes. So, But a multifamily requires more work versus, I guess, storage, where you just took over those units. They're trading less than uh, the market. Maybe you need to do a little fresh paint, but that's about it, right? <laughs> There's nothing to renovate in a in the storage uh,
0: box. Yeah, and to, to expand for a moment on the, on the phrase value add, um, one of the reasons that uh, I'm sure you, and of course we like commercial real estate investing, and I'm kind of putting multifamily in that bucket, um, we did a lot of single family homes over the years, uh, well over a thousand. And generally in single family, if you're, if you're accumulating a rental portfolio, your, your returns are mainly going to be from potential appreciation, right? A little bit from cash flow, but mainly from the, the value of the asset going up on a sales comparison approach, right? You buy a deal for hundred grand, uh, similar brick ranches in the neighborhood, five years later are trading for 200, you've created a lot of value. Well, you didn't actually create that value. The market did for you. And one of the cool things about commercial real estate investing is we are all actually, we're forcing that appreciation. We're making that appreciation happen. We're not buying a deal for ten million dollars and just kind of hoping that in ten years it's going to be worth fifteen or twenty, just because the market's going to go up. We're we're making it increase the value, increase that value by growing rents, controlling operating expenses, and growing
1: NOI. That's right. So yeah, that's the difference between value add investing and kind of investing at the core investing or at the um, essentially, stabilized product, and uh, yeah. In, in just to be fair for the comparison to the uh, single family portfolios, normally if you buy them right at a, at a steep discount and do the value add work, you still buy at a discount. The concept is the same. You can do value add in residential, in the value add multifamily. You can do value add in uh, uh, in storage. But I did want to add this comment. My observation with the residential. In today's environment, if you go into these, it's gotten so much harder to find these deals uh, to renovate and then to, let's just say, refinance and to sell. It's almost you know borderline impossible, very, very difficult to do it in volume and scale. Well, in the commercial, you can do it. So on a one-off property, of course, but if you're running a profitable operation in the uh, commercial buy, fix, sell, turnkey space, it's got a whole lot harder than... Uh, Doing this in storage and multifamily because you have no economy of scale. I mean, you can buy 300, 400 uh, doors or units in storage, even more, 500, 1,000 uh, on a big project in the same multifamily, and you have great economy of scale versus uh, uh, single families, just it, the management issue is a bajillion times harder. So, from that perspective, I think <laughs> commercial, that's the reason we moved to commercial real estate. We still do some work in residential space, but in general, uh, uh, the economy of scale exists in the commercial. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts on storage? So on a forward investment opportunity, um, you have know, a fund tree. talk a little bit about this. Let, let's just give your fund three a little little overview. And um, so what does your fund do, fund three is doing right now? It's raising capital for what projects? And yep. so interested, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, fund three
0: is uh we launched fund three in April of 22. And since then, through the end of February, we've closed on eight acquisitions, totaling about uh 56 million in gross capitalization. Um they're they're deals that are a combination of kind of heavier value add, but also some deals that create current cash flow, uh just based on the deal type. Um we're only buying existing storage facilities. And we add value to these first with capital improvements, nothing major as we pointed out earlier, Um, sometimes major, but generally we're swapping outdoors, seal coating the asphalt, new gate systems, camera systems, uh, renovating the leasing office, and just making it um, basically a a rebrand. But most of our value creation strategy is driven by our our, uh, ability to effectively grow NOI and bring those below-market revenue streams up to market rates. Um, so we've got a few acquisitions in the pipeline that are in various stages of either LOI or contract negotiations. Um, we're seeing deal flow pick up a little bit, um, but uh, it's, a, it's still a challenging deal flow environment with that wide bid-ask spread, which we touched on a few minutes ago. Um, so yeah, Fund 3 is buying existing storage facilities and just adding value with more more effective management. Yeah, that's great to hear. Now, how would folks get a hold of you? What's what, what's the... Uh, we always love made to made talk shop it? about real estate. Uh, folks can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Uh, go to our website, vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, as you said, as you grow your fund three and you have fund two and fund one, the bigger the pie, maybe you could sell the whole thing at a better price one of these days. So from that perspective, it's always uh, kind of Uh, economy of scale exercise, but in general, um, has it gotten harder? Well, I guess the answer to the question is almost obvious. Uh, The properties you bought a few years ago in your fund one and two, they're probably cash flowing way, 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 way better than the fresh acquisitions because of the high interest rates. So you're forced to pay much higher uh, rates and have lower leverage. They assume you still have some cash flow, but it's a lot lower than... Uh, what it was a few years back.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a that's a big um, that's a big big shift in expectations that investors need to have in this environment. Environment that if you're deploying equity into a private real estate syndication or fund or really any real estate for that matter, your expectations for current cash flow need to be materially lower than they were a year or two ago, and that's really for two reasons uh, that are kind of obvious. One is interest rates have more than doubled. And secondly, asset valuations have not really moderated in general, but back down to where maybe they should be with that increased cost of capital. Um, But uh, we can't predict interest rates. We can't predict cap rates. um, But we can, to a reasonable degree, control net operating income. There's, of course, outside market forces. So we are singularly laser focused on growing net operating income and in turn growing cash flow. And uh, hopefully the capital markets moderate. Um, we often say you, you marry the deal, but you date the debt. Um, if it's a good deal with good fundamentals and the story makes sense um, and the pricing is attractive and it's downside protected, you shouldn't not buy that deal just because interest rates are now at a seven versus a three and a half.
1: <laughs> that's, that's an interesting way to put it. Marry the deal, uh, date the debt. So that's right. If the debt gets uh less expensive, you find a cheaper a cheaper date. <laughs> that's
0: that's right. Yeah, you find a cheaper date. And that's making a big assumption that debt's going to get less expensive. Um, but the fundamentals of the underlying asset are what matters most. Obviously, you're gonna get in trouble if you lever it up at 80% and your interest rate's high. Um, but um, asset fundamentals are what we're laser focused on. The debt matters. And of course, that debt is creating um, a diminished distributable cash flow situation. Um, but the cost, the, the cost per pound on our asset base, we're very excited about the performance. We're excited about, and uh, if rates moderate down, maybe we can increase cash flow and ship out some proceeds on a refi. Uh, we'll see what the next couple quarters hold.
1: Jake, I appreciate your wisdom. I'm going to walk away from this conversation thinking about you know marry the deal, date the debt, and uh, it's a, such a brilliant. Way to put it.
0: Uh, That's right. Good. If if, 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 I, if, I, if I can only give one nugget out today, I guess that'll be the nugget. Yeah. It's a great nugget.
1: Thank you, Jake. Always a pleasure and a privilege, folks. Uh, reach out to Jake. Uh, he, he, a little bit earlier in the podcast, he gave you the contact information. Talk to him about storage, his fun, three, and uh, just, you know, any other questions about uh, what's going on. He, he's a sharp cat, as, as you can all. As you can hear in this podcast, so thank you, Jake. I'm great. Thanks, Mike. Good, good to see you, buddy. Thanks for having us on. Likewise, thank you. Thank you for listening
0: to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening
1: and keep investing. Big Mike Style. See you on the next episode.